BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. People always say, does it hurt to ask? I remember one time I wrote a book and everyone said, oh, you should ask so-and-so if you can go on his podcast. And I was so nervous. It terrified me. And then the other question is, is how can I have more influence in life? Like I have things that I feel strongly about. I want people to like me. I want to make friends. Are there ways to have more influence? Maybe I have more influence than I think. So we spoke to Vanessa Bond, author of You Have More Influence Than You Think. And in the first half, part one, she describes stories of how the notorious cyber hacker Kevin Mitnick would use the power of asking, the unexpected power of asking that he knew about to basically social engineer his way to get passwords and so on to hack into companies. She describes very interesting studies about how people shouldn't be as afraid to ask as they think. People maybe have more influence, as the title suggests, than they think, and why. We discussed that. And in part two, we give specific exercises. How can we improve your superpower of asking, your superpower of influence? And of course, what is her husband's favorite band? So onwards to part one. So Jay, I was not thrown out of undergrad. What happened was I was, I wanted to graduate in three years to save my, to save money. So I didn't have to pay for a fourth year because college is expensive. But in order to graduate in three years from the college I was going to, I needed a 3.0 GPA and I only had a 2.999 GPA and they literally were not going to let me graduate. So I went to a professor where that semester I was getting a D plus or sorry, I was getting a D minus in Fortran programming. And I had to just, I had no reason. I couldn't say, Oh, I deserve a, a better grade. I just simply said, I need a D plus. Otherwise I can't graduate. <laughs> And he said, okay. And he gave me a D plus instead of a D minus for no reason. Like I was a bad student and he gave me a D plus instead of a D minus. And so Vanessa Bonner wrote, you have more influence than you think is joining us today. Vanessa, explain why he just so easily said yes to me on a ridiculous request where I had no reason. I, I didn't say, oh, I deserve a D plus because at least I tried hard. I didn't try hard at all. I barely went to class. I didn't submit homework. I failed every test. I deserved a D minus. Why did he just say yes so easily to me? 
Yeah, I love that story. Um, I mean, in my research, right, we look at people who ask for requests and we don't give them rationales to ask and they go up to people and they make these requests and people disagree, as you said, for no good reason because it's really hard to say no. And so it's possible in that case that he just felt guilty for, you know, holding you back by keeping you to the standard of, you know, like 0.0001. Um, and so he just bumped you up. But I'd say that in a lot of other instances, you could probably ask for a lot more than that 0.0001 um, with very little rationale and be surprised at the things people will agree to. Like what? So in our studies, we, as I said, we have people come into the lab and then we send them out into the world and they ask people for things and we give them a super basic script. Usually there's not much of a rationale. So for example, we started really small where we had them go out into campus and just say, will you fill out a survey? Uh, and they went up to people and said, will you fill out a questionnaire? Uh, and before they went out, they guessed how many people they would have to ask before five would agree. They went out and actually did this and kept track of how many people they would have to ask. And we looked at what they predicted and what actually happened. And what we saw is that they thought they would have to ask about 20 people to get five people to agree, but they actually had to ask only 10 to get five to agree. So basically they overestimated the number of people who would say no to them by twice as much. So it's interesting because on the one hand, and you, you talk about this in your book, on the one hand, we're, we're all afraid to say no. And actually I've even written a book called The Power of No. I and, know. Uh, and uh, because I'm afraid to say no, and I had to learn how to say no to just carve out more time in my life. But on the other hand, we're all afraid to ask for things. So I've done an experiment for myself where I'll go to a Starbucks and uh, order a coffee. And then when they ring me up, I'll say, can I have 10% off without giving any rationale just to overcome this fear of asking for things. And you, you refer to something called rejection therapy in your book, and we'll talk about that later. But what, what's the story here? There's this kind of di, uh, almost dichotomy, like we're afraid to say no, but we're afraid to ask, even though we know that the people we're asking are also afraid to say no. Exactly. So when we're in the position of asking, we have so many anxieties around asking and being rejected. Uh, and we're so focused on the, that self-consciousness, those anxieties, that we are really bad at understanding how the person in the other position feels as well. And actually that person also has a lot of anxieties. And one of them is that it's really hard to say no. Like you said, we don't like to say no to people. It makes us feel really guilty. It's really awkward. You have to come up with the words to reject someone. You feel sort of like you're rejecting them as a person or what they're asking for. And so there's this whole host of anxieties that goes into being asked for something that we forget about when we're the ones doing asking because we're so focused on our own anxieties. And so we think people will say no to us more easily than they do. I would think though, it would be easier to say no than to ask. And the reason is if someone says no to you, then you're rejected. So like looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, if you're rejected by your tribe, you could be risking your life. Your tribe could push you out and you could be eaten by wolves or whatever. So I would think just intuitively that it would be harder to ask for things than to say no, because, uh, you know, people are more, have more self-interest than caring about others in general, I find, I, I don't know if research supports that or not. So I would think it would be easier to say no than to ask, but that doesn't seem to be the case. <laughs> I, I actually think that that's sort of an interesting expectation that a lot of us have, that we think 
being rejected is really painful and that's a terrible thing. And we forget that doing the rejecting is also really painful. And even for the same reasons, right? So you said that, you know, being rejected means you're potentially removed from your tribe, but rejecting someone can also push you away from that tribe, right? You're basically saying, no, go away. I don't want to help you. I'm not participating in this sort of community where we help each other out and exchange goods. Right. So you're not like the tribe likes people who are cooperative. So, you know, you can work together for a common cause, like defeating the wolves and getting food and so on. So if you're not cooperative and you're known as that, you could also get pushed out of the tribe. So, so what's, what do you think, like, how far does it go? Like, can, can people just go to their boss and ask for a 20% raise? Like how, how far do you think the asking could go where, where people are, are nervous about asking? Yeah, so we have tried to push it, you know, to its limits as much as possible. So we've, you know, the survey was a pretty simple way to start, um, but we've kind of upped the ante over the years. And so we've done things like have people go out and ask people to borrow their cell phone to make a phone call. Uh, we find the same effects. We think that we're going to have to ask many more people before three people in that case will agree than we actually have to do. Um, we've had people ask for large surveys. We've had people ask for charitable donations who are participating in a sponsored race. And then actually in my personal favorite study, we were like, how far can we really push this? Is it all about, you know, asking for favors or could you ask for other things? And we had our participants go into libraries and we gave them mocked up library books. They weren't real library books, but they looked like real library books. And they went up to people and they asked them to vandalize the library books. They would say, I'm playing a prank on my friend. Will you just write the word pickle and pen on this library book? Hand them the library book, hand them the pen. And again, they would guess how many people they would have to ask before three would agree. Then they went out and actually asked people. And we found that people really protested. They were like, this doesn't seem right. I don't really want to do this. We're going to get in trouble. Um, but they still agreed to do this again, because it was hard to do the thing, but it was harder to say no to doing that what, thing. What percentage would agree? So in that case, it was something like 60%. So it was more so than half of the people actually agreed. So it's similar to like the Milgram shock experiment, which we don't have to go over here ever, you know, but, uh, well, basically, and you've referred to it in your book, uh, the psychologist asked people to, to, um, shock other people. And he would, he was trying to see how far people would go and people went pretty far, like shocking people almost to death. Now it was a fake shock and the, the victims were part of the experiment and the whole experiment was to see how far people would go. But in any case, you know, there's, there's a cliche slash joke among men that, uh, you know, I've heard since I was a kid, so I don't mean for this to sound insensitive or anything, but basically the idea is if you stand on a street corner and you ask every single woman passing by to have sex with you, one in a hundred will. <laughs> and it's kind of part of this idea that you would think zero would, but the idea is if you ask enough, don't be afraid to ask because fairly quickly you could get what you want. And so that's kind of the idea here. What, and you talk about some extremes and asking, like knowing that people are far more likely to say yes than to say no. Some people have used this for nefarious uh, uses, like in my example. And, and uh, you describe the story of Kevin Mitnick, who was a famous hacker. Uh, like he would hack into big uh, companies or government institutions or whatever. And he went to jail for, for five years for computer hacking. But he wouldn't like hack in the sense that he knew like how to break into all the computer codes and all that. He would use what's called social engineering. He would, uh, and maybe you could describe what that is and, and some of the techniques he used in social engineering. 
Yeah, so I love Kevin Mitnick's story, and he's kind of turned into a good guy, right, who advises companies now on how to avoid the things he was able to do. Um, but he wrote this book, Ghost in the Wires, and he talks about when he hacked into Motorola. And when you hear, like, hacked into, like you said, you think of someone who's, like, running all this computer code and, like, typing in things and figuring out passwords, but he didn't do any of that. He did social engineering, which is that he would figure out, for example, the weather in a certain place, and there'd be a blizzard. And so he'd say, you know, he'd call in and call into a particular department and say, hey, you know, I'm working from home in the snow. Like he didn't work at this place, right? But he would make up some excuse and he would say, I really need my password to be able to work from home. Um, and I know it's in the other room and, you know, could you just run and get it? I know so-and-so. And he would like drop a name of somebody. And people on the phone would be so sort of uncomfortable challenging on him on who he said he was or what he needed uh, that they would go to these great lengths to like run around and give sometimes their passwords to him just to help him out. Um, he would ask for like, you know, the new code of the new Motorola and people would send him these files like circumventing all these security measures that are in place that only people who are supposed to get those files should get. But he would convince people that, you know, they were just helping out someone who really, really did need to get these files, but they just didn't want, it would be too uncomfortable for everybody for them to say, I don't believe you're who you say you are. Right. And I, I think the, the psychological hurdle he probably had to get over was that it's okay if he doesn't have a hundred percent success rate. Like, you know, again, one out of a hundred is success because then he hacks into that company. So if he has a 50% success rate, as you're suggesting, asking might have, you know, or even greater, he could call, you know, 10 companies. And if five of them he gets the passwords for, suddenly he's a major hacker. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the the sort of takeaways is that we tend to get so focused on the rejection piece and, you know, we have this negativity bias. So if we're rejected once, we assume like everyone's going to reject us. But as you said, if, you know, for the most part, we find this like 50-50 kind of uh, number of people who are willing to say yes. So one rejection means that the next person is likely to say yes, you know. So and if you keep focusing on that, there is a chance in the future that someone's going to say yes. Were there any other techniques you used that, that were interesting in terms of asking? So we tried a bunch of different sort of variations of this paradigm. So as I said, you know, the basic paradigm was super simple. People would just go out and make this request, you know, can I borrow your phone? Will you fill out a survey? Will you do this thing? Um, and then we tried to vary it. We, we thought, okay, what if we gave people t money to hand out to people, right? What would happen then? So we gave them dollar bills. They went out and they said, you know, if I give you a dollar, will you either fill out a survey or vandalize a library book? We had different variations. And people thought that would make a huge difference, but actually the actual compliance rates didn't change for a dollar versus nothing. It was more about in that moment, it's too hard to say, no, it doesn't matter what someone's offering me. But we think that if we offer something, if we sweeten the deal, you know, someone's more likely to say yes. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, 
I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of en- entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything and go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. 
Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Let's talk about this in the context of Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. And you mentioned Cialdini a couple times in the book. So his first rule of influence is reciprocity. The idea that if you give someone something, I guess you have to give them an advance, like, and then they're more likely later to say yes to something as opposed to it being a straight transaction. But Robert Cialdini in his introduction to his book, Influence, talks about something um, that's essentially placebic information. So when you again, refer to this in your book, like if I, if you, if someone's on the copy machine and I say, Hey, can I use the copy machine? They might say yes. Or they might say no, they, they, they're in the middle of, they're doing their copies. Why would they let you cut in? But if you, but Cialdini pointed out, if they, if you use the word, because if you, uh, if you say, I, Hey, can I, can you let me use the copy machine for a little bit? Because I have to make copies, you know, even if it's something ridiculous on the other side of the because they're more likely to say yes. Did you find that to be true about because, or does because not matter? So we didn't test that exactly, but I'll tell you the thing that I find most interesting about that study. So Cialdini, as you said, he calls it the click where response, where it's just like you start, you know, you hear something and you automatically process it and you just respond mindlessly. Click were, you know, I just implement the script. Someone's asking me with a reason to cut in front of me. And so I just say yes, mindlessly. Um, but if you look at that copier study by Ellen Langer, uh, you see there's, there's three different conditions. There's one where they just ask, there's one where they give the because, and there's one where they give a because that makes no sense, right? So there's like, because uh, I'm in a rush, so okay, that's a rational reason to cut in line, you know, okay, maybe you're willing to let someone cut. And then because I need to make copies, and everyone in there needs to make copies, right? So it's not actually a legitimate excuse. And there's no difference between because I need to make copies and because I'm in a rush, right? So it's suggesting that people are responding mindlessly. And in both those conditions, people say yes at over 90% right? So the vast so the because makes people, no difference. The, those are two different becauses. So it's two okay. different, like there's a script that has a because, but there's a third condition where there's no because, and it makes a difference, right? So it's less effective than the because, but it's still incredibly effective. It's like more than 70% of people still say yes in that condition. And I think that gets lost sort of in translation when we talk about that study that even with no because, people are so overwhelmingly sort of inclined to agree when we ask them for something. So this is all very interesting. So the, this part of the book, the summary is essentially that you should, 
particularly if you if, if you've mapped out the consequences of asking and, and i can get to that in a second what does it mean to have consequences of asking something it, it, let's say there's no consequences to asking people should in general ask more for what they want than be bogged down in the anxieties like for you personally what's like given that you had this knowledge after you got this knowledge through research or whatever uh how have you made use of it like what have you asked for that previously you might have been nervous about asking for I mean, so many kind of little things. I like to tell a story about like when I was pregnant and, you know, you it's, there's the whole like I'd like to sit down on the train, but everyone's involved in their own thing and they're looking at their phones. And like the only way that people are actually going to stand up and let you sit down is if you go up and ask. Um, and after having done this research, I, I felt really comfortable just going up to people and being like, hey, do you mind if I sit down? Right. And just knowing, even if I didn't use, I mean, and this gets to the consequences, even if I didn't sort of use that tactic and actually ask, I knew I could if I needed to. And research actually shows that knowing that you could get help if you needed it is just as helpful for sort of your um, self esteem and your mental well being as actually getting the help. Right. This is like a superpower. Like, th mm -hmm. this is like, you know, it's, as your book says, you know, you have more influence than you think. And, and you also mentioned in the book, that people on average think they have less influence than they think, you know, as opposed to, uh, many studies, which show people usually have overconfidence, like, you know, nine out of 10 people think they're an above average driver, which is impossible, mm -hmm. or let's just say above median driver. Cause people get sticklers about that. But, uh, people are under, uh, are underconfident in terms of their social behavior, their ability to ask for things, the fact that everybody thinks everyone's looking at them on the dance floor, stuff like that. But okay, wh what else? What, what else have you seen people, given that they have knowledge of this superpower that they have or that you have knowledge of this superpower that you have, what are some other things that people have done after learning the power of asking? So, I mean, I definitely think it's useful in situations where there are inequities in asking that can lead to sort of broader uh, so, sort of societal inequities. So here's two um, examples. So one is that women are less likely to ask for raises, as you mentioned, the asking for a raise than men tend to be on average. Um, and there's been arguments that that can lead to a gender wage gap. And then there's other research showing that kids from lower income backgrounds are less likely to ask their teachers for help than kids from higher income backgrounds who feel more entitled to ask for help. So it seems like if mentally you place yourself on a hierarchy where you're below the person you're asking, then you're more afraid to ask and hence you won't get what you want. But if you can acknowledge that and, and say to yourself, well, uh, like, let's say asking the, the boss for a raise, if you say, well, I work harder than my boss, so I'm on a hierarchy of working hard, I'm higher than my boss, then that may, might give you the confidence to ask for the raise. It's all seem in the cases you described, it seems hierarchical a little bit, regardless of whether or not that's been researched or studied. What, what do you think of that approach in terms of getting yourself the esteem to ask? Yeah, I definitely think that's a good point that those are more hierarchical. Um, and one of the things I think we often forget is that bosses and people in positions of power are people too. And they also care about how they look to other people. They also have emotions like guilt and they also feel bad saying no. And I think we tend to forget that when we're in the position of being in less power than somebody else. Um, and so I think keeping that in mind is really useful.
Yeah, or and again, if you can establish some way in which you actually have power over the other person, or not power, but hierarchy or status over the person, it might be easier to say yes. And and the other thing is is understanding what kind of boss someone is. Like, yes, everybody's afraid to ask their boss for a raise, but let's say I'm the boss and I've been a manager of people since around 1994. And I'm a I think I'm a pretty good motivator. Like there's lots of different skills of leadership and management. And one is, can you motivate people? The other is, can you communicate a vision? The other is, can you effectively execute on ideas more efficiently than other managers and leaders? But the other is kind of managing the psychology and emotions of your employees. So in general, they feel optimistic and, and good about you and, and, and so on. And when people ask me for a raise, I can't say no. This is where I can't say no. So everyone should, don't, Jay, the engineer who's on this podcast, don't <laughs> yeah. listen to this part. So I basically just say yes all the time to stuff like that. I can't say no. Or or I basically shut down and stop communicating with the person forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love Jay's getting a lot of tips. We also talked before about uh, he was going to ask a bunch of girls out now, knowing that it's harder for them to say no. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, I mean, when I was in, just as a little side story, when I was in high school, the very first girl I asked out, she, I had a paper route and she had the paper route next to my paper route. And so we would always meet at the end and I asked her to a movie and she said yes, but that's because she was afraid to say no. So the next day she had her brother come up to me and say, listen, she says no. <laughs> and I was, I actually left school that day. I was so upset, but, uh, uh, that's kind of similar to what you said. Like people are more likely to say no over email because there's this distance, uh, as opposed to being right there where you're being, everything is being confronted right there. Yeah, absolutely. It's so much harder to say no to someone who's standing right in front of you than an email in your inbox that is not immediate, right? You can take your time and think about what you're going to say in response. And you're not actually saying no to someone's face. And then even worse, right? Now we have the world of ghosting where you don't even have to respond, but people avoid saying no altogether by just like not responding to someone to, to break up with them or show them that, that they're not interested. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm a ghoster. I mean, I'm married <laughs> now, but I, I was a ghoster. I'm, I'm bad. But, uh, uh, you know, there's a very interesting story in the book, which I think should be an exercise for, for everyone listening to this, which will help with increasing your superpower of asking if you do this. And I've done this sort of exercise and it really helps helped me quite a bit. But you told the story of this guy, Jason Comley, I think if I remember correctly, his name is, um, where he was very, very, he was depressed. He had just been broken up with. He was depressed uh, and he needed to get more confident about asking. So he decided every day he was going to get rejected. And actually this had a very interesting outcome, this, this story, but why don't you tell that, that story? Yeah, I love this. Um, actually, I found out about this thing called rejection therapy when I was running one of my studies, when I was basically, basically sending my participants out to ask other people for random things like vandalizing a library book. And I got an email from a participant who was like, can, can we talk? And I thought he was going to be upset because I was unethically like getting people to vandalize library books or something, which a couple of people I had to tell them that they were not real library books. Um, but instead he was like, oh, this reminds me so much of rejection therapy. Are you testing it? 
And I learned what it was. And as you said, this guy, Jason Cumley, um, was, you know, he had been broken up with. He was really depressed. He wanted to get over rejection. And he came up with essentially a card game where he came up with a bunch of random things that he could ask people. And every day he had to ask people a random thing that actually got him rejected. So he would just come to terms with rejection. Um, and they were so, things... So, he, so I'm sorry. Yeah. So he would shuffle the deck every day, pick a card, and it would say... Um, you know, ask ask someone for ten dollars, or yep. ask someone for their cell phone, or ask someone. What what were some of the things that he would ask people? Yeah, and this. So I should say, uh, Zha Zhang also. So he sort of took this idea and made it even more popular because he did a whole blog about his uh, experience using rejection therapy. And so some of these ideas also came from Zha Zhang, but. Uh, so, for example, there were things like you said, like ask someone for $10, um, ask a waitress to dance with you in a restaurant, ask a random person on the street to race you to the end of the street, um, ask people to give you a compliment, um, go to a store and ask if you can make an announcement over the speaker. And there are just so many sort of funny examples of First of all, these things working, right? Like you think, you know, that's crazy. This is how I'm going to get rejected. But actually people say yes. And so you kind of learn that rejection is less likely than you think. But also people feeling bad when they say no. So like uh, Zha Zhang, when he details on his blog doing this, this speakerphone thing. So, you know, speak over, do an announcement over the speaker at a, at a, a store. The manager at the store felt so bad saying no that he was like, eh, why don't you go to the restaurant and get some food on the house, right? So like kind of making up for that rejection, which made it sting a little bit less. Wow. So do you think, do you think there's something in your personality that will get like, like obviously this rejection therapy worked for Xiao Zhang and, and Jason Comley and, uh, maybe many other people. But are there some people who get rejected more than others, or is it kind of just across the board? Sometimes you get rejected, sometimes you don't. And and by the way, the real the real consequence of this exercise for everybody listening is to get comfortable with rejection and learn not to take it so personally, so that you could start to to build your superpower of asking a bit more. Like you want to actually get rejected in this. You don't want to necessarily have everything be. Uh, uh, people say yes to everything. So that the, the point is to get rejected. But do you, do you find that there are a type of person or, or a technique that gets someone less rejected than others? So there's definitely sort of uh, small differences. So people ask me a lot about like, oh, do attractive people get rejected less than unattractive people? You know, uh, people of different races, men versus women. Um, and people come up with a lot of ideas, you know, what you're wearing. And there's definitely previous research on some of those things, you know, people are more influential when they're like dressed in formal wear or they match the clothes that you have because you're more similar. That's like a Cialdini liking, um, type of, uh, uh principle. Um, you know, if you, you know, more attractive people are a little bit more influential, but all those differences are actually pretty small. Um, what, compared... what, what about uh, race? Like if, a uh... Uh, a black person is asking a white person for something as opposed to a white person asking a black person or a white person asking a white person? Yeah, so this is a huge unanswered question that I think is super important to be able to answer. So unfortunately, psychology has not done a good job of sort of looking at how race moderates a lot of our findings. And this is one of those cases where we don't have a really uh, good answer to that. I mean, it's um, a complicated answer, but you can look at data from economics. Like you could say um, who's who gets rejected for a mortgage, 
Uh, yes. So you ask for a mortgage and or who has rejected a job, you know, and Freakonomics has done some work on this where uh, depending on your name on the resume, who gets rejected for jobs more. And there does seem to be, it's hard to say whether something is systemic or not. Like a, a, a black person might be asking for a mortgage at a black bank and a white person might be asking for a mortgage at a white bank. And it turns out that banks located in urban areas are in fact more likely to say no, but for completely different reasons than you would expect. So, but there, there's some studies on this, but I don't know what you get. Uh, they're not necessarily psychological studies. They're more like economic right. studies, but, um, so, and so I will you're saying, say, mm -hmm. yeah, the, in terms of the gender aspect, since you brought up the sort of bigger, like mortgage and jobs. So we talked earlier about asking for, you know, a raise at work and there is research showing that women are more likely to be rejected when they ask for a raise and people of color. So, Again, you know, you're less likely than you think about the expectations going in, uh, but there are some differences there in these sort of consequential contexts, like you said, for sure. All right. Well, here's a question. Women are probably also less confident about asking for a raise. So does your confidence determine your, does your level of confidence determine your level of uh, acceptance of the ask? Yeah, I mean, so we haven't actually measured confidence as a variable. We usually kind of assume confidence is the number people give us, like how many people will it take before you actually complete this task? And that kind of gives That's us a, a sense of like, yeah, like how confident they are to be able to finish this. And we actually don't find, at least in our studies, we don't find gender differences in confidence. Every once in a while, um, we'll find a gender difference, but it's, you know, it, it's not consistent and it, we usually don't. Um, I think one of the interesting things is I think, so we talked about rejection therapy and in the book I talk about, I sort of contrast Zha Zhang's experience as a male uh, with someone else who tried rejection therapy, this woman named Haley who did it as part of this BBC, like get better at asking for things kind of um, thing. And the interesting thing is they both had similar experiences. And again, these are two anecdotes, right? So we don't know um, in terms of the research if it would replicate, but they both find out that people are, find it harder to say no to them than they realize or than they expect. And so they both realize they can get things more easily by asking. But Zha Zhang kind of ends, he's got this TED talk where he ends it with like, you know, just ask for things, ask for whatever you need. It's sort of the key to getting things in life. And Haley sort of ends her podcast reflecting on how hard it was for people to say no and that you kind of have to read that and maybe not push so hard. And I think there's there's sort of a different takeaway there potentially that could be gendered where it's like, oh, wow, I can get what I need or wow, I don't want to put pressure on people. I have to imagine that that attractiveness plays a big factor as well. So for instance, you know, if you're if you're online and you're a man and an attractive woman says, hey, can I cut in front of you? a man is probably more likely to say yes to that than if, you know, a man asks, Hey, can I cut in front of you? Yeah. So I don't have data on this, but here's my counterpoint to that is that I think that's true. And it might be more enthusiastic, right? That like, Oh yeah, of course. But I think it is really hard to say no or tell someone they can't cut in line, even if they're really unattractive. It's still just a really awkward situation. And I think that the difference in attractiveness is probably smaller than, than we think it is. So in part two, which was also available today, you could download it right now. In part two, we give specific exercises how to improve your ability to ask people anything, specific exercises on how to have more influence 
over or with others and very important exercises on how to better say the word no. Plus again, lots of great stories from Vanessa. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.